Welcome to the Visegrad Inside podcast from Central Europe on Central Europe. My name is Matej Kandrik. I'm director of Adapt Institute, a security and defense policy oriented think tank from Slovakia. And I'm a marching crew, a fellow at Visegrad Insight. It's January 23rd. Uh, Wojciech Przybylski and Miles Maftian at Visegrad Insight uh, podcast. And we're recording this podcast right uh, after um, some decisions were not made, and yet there are other decisions that have been made regarding tanks. Uh, tanks are really on the agenda of that week. They have been already on the agenda of the past week when Europe has been looking at Germany, whether German changes, uh, changes in the German government, including the Minister of Defense, would bring different outcomes. Uh, but they haven't in terms of uh, German position on delivery of the, of the tanks. And yet it seems that at some point Germany will agree to deliver its own tanks to, to Ukraine. We'll see if that will be impactful and, uh, and important politically, but also even more importantly, um, will it be impactful on the outcome of the war in Ukraine. At the same time, there were other decisions that we are covering also in the weekly outlook uh, that may mean that tanks will be delivered sooner than later. And overall, as we write, Europe delivers more than it that is being perceived to deliver in terms of uh, support to the resistance of Ukraine against the Russian aggression. But this is all to be now discussed and unfolded. Uh, so, uh, Miles, why don't we uh, recap all the points that we gathered for the weekly outlook and what were the important decisions uh, taken recently? I think first and foremost, it's kind of, I put all of this under the threat of kind of the, the defense threat of Europe is untwining. I don't know if you agree with me or not on this, but what we saw yesterday is that Germany, well, essentially doesn't stand in the way of these tank deliveries. At least that's what the German Minister of Foreign Affairs, uh, Badebach, said, that the deliveries of the Leopard 2 to Ukraine from Poland, they're not going to stop it, right? And, and here we think, I think it's important to say that from the Polish government side, the declaration was to build a coalition of countries that also are in possession of uh, Leopard 2 tanks, that Poland wants to lead a coalition, and as much as it doesn't necessarily mean a lot in terms of delivery of the force to Ukraine, it means a lot in terms of politics and political weight of Central Europe and Poland specifically in the constellation of the, of the European Union. Right. Because uh, the numbers of tanks, uh, Leopard tanks, uh, which are the most useful um, for, for Ukrainians, not only that they are rather modern, but first of all, they are available in generally available if Germany is to be included in large numbers and with geographical proximity that enables the logistics and supplies and repairs that are necessary in every tank operation to be uh, to be really helpful for Ukraine, of course, when they are actually delivered. When they're delivered. And to me, to me, it just seems a bit absurd that we're still having this sort of discussion on that, right? So we find out that Germans won't stand in the way through an interview on, on French television. Right. It seems very strange. I mean, this looks, from my standpoint, it looks it looks extremely bad in terms of this European unity and the question of actually arming Ukraine more generally. Well, we can discuss uh, Europe and Europe's global strategy and what it means, uh, because all of a sudden we became tank experts like everyone else yeah. in Europe. Uh, but we've been following that closely to understand also the meaning of the political uh, symbolism and the, uh, the political implications of this hesitance of, of Germany. 
And there are more and more reports and essays and analysis coming out uh, pointing to Scholz as he's missed the moment to actually deliver on geopolitical, uh, on, on geopolitical leadership of Germany or any type of German leadership in, right. in Europe. That Germany, since the reunification, has been uh, not only expected to, but sometimes and oftentimes uh, praised for. And now we don't see we any. Don't we don't see any uh, German leadership, and that is uh, definitely problematic for all of the partners. Uh, we'll, we're going to publish um, a very interesting essay by Roderick Park, Parks, a fellow at the German Council of Foreign Relations, uh, in which uh, he basically calls it a second Brexit, kind of overplaying the domestic politics agenda uh, over, over the in international agenda of, of Germany. And that has large implications for for most of the German partners in Europe, specifically Central Eastern European partners, yeah. because that creates a huge vacuum, just like Brexit has created one. But I'm also seeing this other element, and I don't know if you're going to agree with me or not, but when you look, looking forward and you think of the arms delivery, I'm not an expert on this, but I don't know, from my standpoint, I feel like a lot of CE leaders will actually think twice about signing you know, agreements for arms with, with Germany. Uh, with the producer agreements the way that they are, essentially being handcuffed. That is for the time being. Again, um, it's it's a it's a bit of a, a short term and long term um, strategy or, or tactics, right? In the terms of, of of short term, right now we need tanks quickly. But any tanks uh, that come from far abroad and do not uh, involve uh, uh, expanding of the industrial potential to modernize, uh, to repair, to, to essentially even build them at home, is, uh, is a bit of a wasted money. Uh, yeah. So on the, on the long term, it's a bad decision. But in the short uh, run, anyone who wants to quickly purchase, just Poland right. is, is purchasing, yeah. that's perfectly logical to, to make these big purchases uh, abroad. Except that tanks will be you know, used for hopefully... In, they will not be. Um, they will not be immediately destroyed in any potential arms conflict, and it's gonna. They're gonna serve for a longer time. Right. And 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 that leads more to to um, uh, to a conclusion that in the long term, still for everyone in in Europe and Central Europe, it would be better to build and rely the European forces, industrial, you know, defense industry. But uh, the moment, the kind of the, this, this delicate balance. Uh, of 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 uh, of needs and uh, and availability and of of these resource for for actually getting getting the stuff done uh, that is that is ahead of us so so while having this big strategy for the future and this is also where we are in the business of foresights and and strategies and the new EU strategy may be also involving that. We're missing the, this this mean windows that have been closed even before this conflict, because uh, Europe and, and Germany has not been preparing for that. And what I wanted to say, the last point is that while indeed German position is lamentable, and Chancellor Scholz, I think it was Timothy Garton uh, Ash who who called uh, the the type of politics that he does as uh, Scholz Scholz Scholzing. Scholzing, Scholzing, which is like not taking a decision that is meaningful. That that's clearly um, hurting Germany. But inside Germany, these preparations, they're not, uh, and this uh, movement is not um, inconsequential. It is actually rather now to be expected that 
German position is changing, and so long-term change. And while Germany changes its position for the long term, we should be more all aboard, uh, because that builds altogether also a European industrial potential. Also, when it comes to all the uh, you know in industries and machinery that is there, it's true that politically they are not capable current, under current leadership to lead Europe. But in terms of milit uh, the, the economic and industrial uh, connectivity. That will be uh, the long-term uh, preference, I, I believe, of, of most of Central Europeans to continue collaborating in whatever form possible, also in defense sector with Germany. Well, when we talk about cooperation of the defense sector in Europe, I mean, you look at a couple of other developments that have been happening even over the weekend. During a, a televised debate yesterday, Babish actually said that he wouldn't send troops to aid Poland or the Baltics if these countries actually came under attack. Not to mention, you have the news that came out of Budapest that hundreds of high-ranking officers were sacked from the military. And the opposition there is, as always, accusing the government of, you know, uh, sacking pro-EU, pro, but in this case, it's pro-NATO officers, while the Ministry of Defense is essentially saying it's just part of the military's modernization. It's well known that one of the only bastions of... of the wider Hungary global cooperation that has actually been going on has been NATO. And under NATO, you kind of look at these officers and all of them were pro-NATO, high ranking in the sense. So there is something to say to that. And now the question is, is sort of what, what's going to happen now? We have to kind of monitor this moving forward because on the one side, you have the, the lack of German political um, leadership mixed with the actual kind of illiberal move to getting rid of those pro-NATO, pro-EU mm -hmm. leaders. Yeah, I, I, would not, I would not be so much worried about uh, firing uh, so many uh, Hungarian generals. After all, Hungarian military might and armies is not, uh, is not making much of a difference, especially with this political leadership. But the worrying part is who's going to be employed instead, because usually you fire people so in such right. numbers in order to, to fill in uh, positions, at least to some extent, with, with newcomers. And um, these newcomers and, 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 and generally the mindset that is being changed uh, in such a Bolshevik way in, in Hungary um, is uh, unfortunately transforming yet another key pillar institutions of democratic security, the army anchored in NATO. In, into a less stable one, into a less uh, potentially reliable one, given uh, a high influence of the, of the two key countries considered by NATO and the EU and the US as uh, so strategic rivals, um, Russia, China, um, that, that are at the same time strategic partners uh, that Orban, uh, Viktor Orban's government is, is most, ha most happy to, to flirt with and, and cooperate. So while the new recruitment process will be going on, this is where I would be worried more than having some important, yeah. important generals. I cannot evaluate their, their um, uh, proficiency of service. And I assume it was high, of course, but then there, there were some found, some some reasons and grounds for, for such a change. So I'm not going to look into that because <laughs> I have no knowledge. Um, but it, it, it is... to look to see what's ahead. Yeah, it, it, let's look into what would see ahead from, from our perspective. I'm sure there will be, there will be upcoming analysis on, on how this decision came about and, 
and how much it, it's going to influence the, uh, again, deteriorating situation of Hungarian democracy on a map of other democracies fighting autor- autocratic uh, powers around, or challenging at least, uh, the autocratic powers uh, uh, around the world. Well, Although, or what this is this is maybe wrongly put the, the autocratic powers are still trying to challenge democracies in terms of who's on top so yeah uh, I think that's uh, that the Hungarian case is very interesting but looking back to what you said about uh, Andrei Babish comments that um, that were recorded that the, the, in which he mentioned that he would not be prepared to uh, to support uh, Poland because also he believes that Poland will not be attacked and I think in this point it's it's rather it's rather okay statement so he's kind of playing this um, uh, this card of, of saying Poland is not under direct threat which is partly true we are not under direct threat but we are under hybrid threat constantly and we have been in Poland under this threat and on this premise he says that Czechs should not be delivering some military assistance, which plays into the narrative he builds against General Pavel, whom he quotes that military personnel should be sent to assist humanitarian aid in Ukraine. And Babish is abusing this quote to to dominate the campaign as, as a person who is opposing Czech direct involvement that nobody really wants. Uh, including, first of all, foremost, Mr. Pavel, General Pavel, uh, in the war in Ukraine. So I think, uh, as we mentioned in the last podcast and last outlook, that puts Mr. Babish very close to the political uh, marketing strategy of uh, Mr. Orban. And there is more than just marketing, political marketing behind it, which is uh, a certain vision of the world in, in which um, countries of Central Europe play along the, the Russian old uh, dream of, of being passive, neutral, at maybe even you know, favoring the, uh, the middle ground uh, positioning of, of dealing with everyone all around the world, regardless of the, uh, of the uh, democratic values uh, of, of, of such partnerships. And it seems like the actual Czech uh, voters aren't buying the Babish ways. As I said last time, uh, I, I, st- I would bet my money. I haven't been betting money on, on General Pavel, but I'm betting money on General Pavel this time. Well, you should be betting because uh, the bookmakers and the polls right now have are favoring Pavel 57.7% of the vote to Babish's 42.4%. Well, I wouldn't be that accurate. So I wouldn't be probably earning that much money on such bets. But yes, uh, but General Pavel, unlike in the previous elections against Mr. Zeman when Democratic candidates um, Karl Schwarzenberg uh, uh, for, for, for the first for the first president presidential term um, uh, lost it to, to Mr. Zeman um, and it seemed that he might be winning this time it seems that General Pavel is really uh, having a, a strong uh, calculated uh, at, he, the upper hand over over Mr. Babish though he needs to be and stay healthy. As, as we're recording this podcast, this is his um, uh, day off because of some, of some cold he caught. So um, stay in good health, uh, both Mr. Uh, Babish uh, and, and General Pavel. We wish you good health. Uh, stay in this uh, race until the end healthy. And uh, still, I would say I'm, I'm keeping fingers crossed for uh, General Pavel, for all he stands for, and that is so much 
close to, to how Visegrad Insight is uh, seeing the, the world affairs and Central European affairs. It's a pleasure to have Mate here with me. Mate is a Marching Kroll fellow. We work together pretty closely at Visegrad Insight. And I have Mate here because, Mate, look, I mean, there's been quite a bit going on in the realm of defense and security. And I just kind of wanted to catch up, have a little bit of a discussion on what we kind of see as being the developments and what these mean for the for the Central Eastern European region. We couldn't necessarily make it work to have you join us this week for the state of Czechia. It's a week-long foresight discussion we're having at Visegrad Insight this week. But thankfully, we can talk and you can kind of give your take for one of our upcoming panels, uh, the state of Czech security and defense. I am not necessarily someone who can focus on arms industry, troop numbers, and kind of more of these hard security uh, measures. But what I kind of want to dive a little bit into is, is this development that has somewhat gone under the radar. Recently, the Czech government announced that it's going to update all its strategic documents, and this comes after all of the challenges posed by the Russian war in Ukraine. So I'm kind of curious, what is this? Where are we at in the process? What are kind of the most significant changes that we can see in these strategic documents? Try to translate this for me or for anyone who's listening and as what this really means for the on-the-ground reality. Hello, Miles. It's great pleasure to be here with you. Thank you for having me. So about your question, yeah, that's right. Uh, government of Czech Republic announced in late uh, autumn, I believe it was November, its intention to update uh, national strategic documents as the current ones are rather old. Uh, the national security strategy is coming uh, from 2015 and national defense strategy is a bit newer, but still uh, rather old from 2017 and regarding all the changes in our security environment we were hit by covid of course uh, now major conventional war uh, in ukraine uh, security environment changed a lot and that's gonna be reflected uh, i believe in new uh, documents uh, which are being prepared right now it makes all the sense uh, to to work on update of all documents in a synchronized way. Uh, I believe um, Czech government quite reasonably waited also for new doc documents coming from the NATO and EU level. I'm of course speaking about EU's strategic compass and NATO uh, strategic concept. Uh, now uh, with both documents being published, Czech Republic can quite easily synchronized uh, and aligned their own uh, documents uh, with this higher level uh, or like international level strategies, uh, right? So what are expected to be most significant changes? Of course, I believe there will be a lot of uh, more focus on uh, Russia and China. Uh, there will be a significant change. Also, I'm expecting uh, Czech Republic going more into the this integrated model of uh, security which is not anymore uh, putting external and internal security as to uh, different parts but it's more thinking it about one whole uh, system also like the holistic more holistic approach and of course uh, 
going much more into the resilience, uh, which wasn't as much uh, important or like in in the focus of uh, experts uh, in the years uh, back. But right now it's quite important, I would say, yes. There have been talks that Czechia and Poland have been increasing their cooperation and building sort of this inter interoperability between their armed forces. And I know that last August, the, the heads of the defense ministries discussed this cooperation within all of these different frameworks of, of international formats. But there's so many that I can't even keep them all in mind, right? So we have NATO, we have the European Union, we have the Visegrad Group. All of these mean something different. All of them have different political goals, political agendas. And yet there's still this sort of larger question looming in defense circles, in, in headlines, in policy groups, which CEE country is going to be the leader of NATO's eastern flank. You know, to a certain extent, I think it's a bit of a silly political discussion that's happening around this. There's so much more to defense that we don't really know about and what we actually see in the headlines. So I don't necessarily want to go down this route of, of being this sort of political talking head and without knowing what the facts are. So that's why we kind of have you here. So the question is, is what what, what do you think? Right. Can can any single CEE country be the leader of NATO's eastern flank or is it a very difficult area where there's no one single CEE country, but it's kind of more of a dual-pronged approach, right? I'm thinking, obviously, of Czechia and, and Poland, but let's not forget, when we talk about Visegrad Group cooperation, we have to always ask ourselves, where does that leave Slovakia and Hungary? So what do you think? Okay, I'll let me start with the part about Slovakia and Hungary, because that would be easier. Uh, well, first of all, to have a leader uh, of NATO Eastern flank, you need to have ambition for that. And uh, neither Hungary or Slovakia uh, got that kind of ambition. Uh, at the same time, of course, Hungary with its policy uh, towards Ukraine uh, and European Union sanctions, etc., uh, etc., et with all the positions uh, and illiberal democratic uh, missteps of the uh, Orban's government. Uh, Hungary is on the fringe uh, of, of this political uh, ideas and movements, so I can't really see Hungary uh, having any uh, reasonable position uh, on the eastern flank. Uh, I think they are and they will stay on the fringe, especially now, when even not Poland is trying to push uh, them forward and uh, their uh, coalition between Budapest and Warsaw is not there anymore. In the case of Slovakia, it's a bit different. Uh, surely, um, Slovakia got no ambition to be leader of NATO eastern flank. And also, our the most important problem we are solving is our own internal instability uh with upcoming uh elections uh, early elections uh, that's where our focus is and i believe there is no political level of ambition uh, to simply uh profile a country as 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 a really leader uh of the region neither capacities to be honest uh, now about um, Czech Republic or Poland, well, that's a very interesting uh, way of thinking. I believe for Czech Republic, certainly brains are there. Uh, Czech Republic uh, in the recent uh, months 
certainly was able to scale up its uh, political leverage and weight uh, within the uh, European Union and, and NATO. It now much more uh, got much more clear voice uh, in both organizations and higher profile. But uh, still, I miss muscles there, to be honest. Uh, Czech Republic is still really far from the pledge of 2% to GDP. And uh, speaking honestly, uh, to be a leader uh, of uh, Eastern flank, NATO Eastern flank, uh, high political profile is simply not enough. You have to get the capabilities and capacities you can bring and put on the table. And that's where Poland is, of course, in a much better position uh, with uh, its own capabilities, uh, current and uh, new ones, which are now under the construction. Uh, Poland will be in coming years, certainly a military uh, regional superpower uh, in, in this sense. But of course, there is the problem of uh, political leadership and uh, willingness of Poland to really align uh, with interests of other countries in the region and not to overshadow them. So um, I think this question is quite unresolvable. Uh, and I, I have troubles to imagine any meaningful dual-pronged approach uh, combining um, Poland uh, military capabilities with Czech political leadership, because why this country would do that? Why would Poland uh, follow up Czech uh, leadership when uh, Czech got only words but no muscles? So in harsh reality and a realistic uh, viewpoint, I, I don't think that's really going to work. Thanks, Mate. Thanks so much. So, you know, the Russian interference. When you think of elections, those are the two words that come to mind. You look at elections across the globe, you, you see Brexit, you see the U.S. presidential elections, the congressional elections, and you know that Russian interference is rampant. But have we seen any Russian interference in the Czech elections? Right? Have we seen any kind of disinformation campaigns coming from the election? You know, I know that when you look at uh, Babish and what he's kind of done, he's running his own little smear campaign, and this kind of gives fuel to, to Russian fire. Even during last night's televised debate, Babish was actually saying that, oh, I'm not going to send troops to, to Poland or the Baltics if they came under attack. Obviously, this can be used by uh, the Kremlin in any way, shape, or form that it wants, right, to show this sort of more disunity. So what have you seen here, if anything? I'm not aware about any proven Russian or any other foreign interference in Czech presidential elections. Uh, of course, uh, disinformation and misinformation are, are present, are heavily present, but they are all, uh, as far as we know right now, uh, homemade, and they are coming uh, especially from a camp uh, supporting uh, candidate uh, Babish. Uh, even his own campaign uh, is being built around attacking the other candidate, uh, General Peter Pavel, uh, as a warmonger uh, and uh, as a person who will lead Czech Republic uh, to the war. So certainly we see there kind of pro-Kremlin uh, narratives or spinning of uh, the, the war issue, but uh, I wouldn't say there is direct uh, interference, or at least there are no evidence to say that or any reports uh, to, to say so. 
Okay, one last question since I have you here. Uh, we've seen some developments in the Slovak political crisis. SAS ditched Hager's efforts at this new majority-backed cabinet, and Hager is now saying that there's no other way but to have these kinds of early elections. Kapotova repeated that if the, the parliament won't find the 90 deputies backing early elections, then she's going to have to appoint a caretaker cabinet. And even in this case, the caretaker cabinet will have to be backed by the 76 majority in the parliament, which is not clear at this point. So just tell me what's going on here. Where are we with it all? What do you what do you think? What do you foresee early elections? This is kind of the discussion that many are saying. Early elections are, in my opinion, highly likely. Uh, I would say almost certain. Uh, already uh, in the parliament, it's been discussed when uh, early elections uh, should take place. Most of the discussion are focused about uh, two dates. One would be like, the later option would be in September, and the soon earlier option would be in uh, June already. For now, there is no clear. A decision uh, on that, but uh, certainly situation is going to uh, early elections. As you said, uh, there was no new uh, majority to support uh, current uh, cabinet and uh, option of a caretaker uh, cabinet put together by President uh, Chaputova seems unlikely as it would be hardly find uh, support uh, from the parliament. Other notable event of uh, recent days uh, I, I would like to mention is the referendum. Uh, referendum was built on question if uh, people want to support uh, option that uh, parliamentary election, uh, election season can be shortened uh, here in Slovakia by a referendum or by a simple decision of the parliament because right now to shorten the electoral term, you have to uh, have a constitutional majority. A uh, referendum was unsuccessful, yet it was attended by over one million of people, and that uh, one million people overwhelmingly vote for option yes. A referendum was organized by opposition, and for them is a kind of victory because of course even if the referendum wasn't successful and nobody expected the referendum uh, to be successful to be honest as we have a super high threshold for referendum to be successful uh, over uh, more than 50% of uh, registered voters uh, got to attend to referendum be, uh, be, be on so for opposition, it's it's still quite a win because they were able to show their strength and the unity uh, of uh, their supporters, their voters. Uh, from the very beginning, I believe, uh, more than the referendum itself, it was like a campaign for Smer, SD and other oppositional parties uh, for the upcoming elections to higher up their profile and to show their strength uh, regarding the government. Of course, now this is widely debated. Uh, coalition parties are saying uh, it, it's clear failure uh, and, and so on, but still, I believe one million uh, voters showing all uh, in a rather snowy day. Uh, it's a number which we should not uh, underestimate. Hello, my name is Michał Szkaradek. Uh, I'm junior fellow at Visegrad Insight. 
I encourage you to take part in uh, uh, State of Czechia events uh, conducted by Visegrad Insight online on Monday, Wednesday and Thursday this week. <laughs>